The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. I've got an orange handout coming around. The Bible Jesus used, a gospel-centered glance at the Old Testament. My hope as we walk through the Old Testament scriptures in these two years, getting a big overview picture that you're going to see the gospel in ways that you perhaps have not. Jesus said this Old Testament was about him. And many of us have not at all spent as much time in the first three-fourths of our Bibles as we have in the last fourth. And because of that, I imagine that there's a lot of gospel that we can see and revel in that we have often passed over, not even seeing it there. And today may be one of those days, and I pray that it is, that Christ will awaken within your heart deeper levels of gratitude, heightened levels of commitment to the glory and the beauty of Jesus and what He is for us, what He has been for us since before time began in the purposes of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You. I thank You that You have spoken. But unless You open up our ears we will not hear. Oh yes, words can come and they can be, they can enter into our minds in a way that we could restate them, but they won't result in change unless your merciful hand overcomes the hardness of our hearts, the blindness of our souls, the deafness of our ears. Grant that we may see. Grant that we may listen. Grant that we may understand and never be the same. Work in us deeper levels of fear of God that we might learn to obey. Not in any sense of working in order to earn your favor, but growing out of the unbeliever, unbelievable favor we've received. Put us, Lord, on the straight and narrow, upon which there are very few that walk, but its end, eternal life. What a hostile world we live in alternative to you and your purposes and your ways, calling us to live for the now instead of for eternity. Open our eyes now that we may behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ I ask, amen. The book of Genesis is about a blessing. A blessing commission. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Who did he say it to? He said it to his image bearers. The purpose of an image is not in and of itself. The purpose of an image is to point to the one that's being imaged. So God's goal for creation in placing humanity over it was that humanity might in turn fill the earth as imagers of God, so that God's glory might be seen on a global scale. And the fall altered that. The rebellion of mankind didn't display that God was great. It said, I am great, and I'm in charge of my world. And God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, out of his promised sacred space for them, They were cast out, and the rest of the Bible is designed to help us to know how to get back into relationship with God. 
And what we found in Genesis 3.15 was the establishment of two distinct alternative family trees. This is what we read in Genesis 3.15. We read, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. There's going to be a distinction between you and the woman. And between your offspring, that is the offspring of the devil, a spiritual progeny that's going to be characterized by what the devil was characterized in the garden. Characterized by hostility against God, against, by deception, by, by all that is evil, against altering God's right order for the world, against bringing others away from God's goodness, There's going to be an entire offspring, an entire line characterized by what the devil was characterized by. The opposite of the glory of God. But then it says, there's also going to be an offspring of the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, there's going to be this animosity, this tension, this enmity. Now this offspring is not just a general people, a community that would stand against the devil. Rather, it's it's specified, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The author of Genesis, when he wanted to let us know that offspring was being used plural, he could add a plural pronoun like he does in Genesis 17, 9, when God promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would give them their land, their land, but not here. It's his heel. So that tells me we're looking for a male descendant of the woman. But it also tells us that this story is not going to end in death in the way that we may have expected it to end but that somehow death is going to be overcome. That the woman is going to have descendants and that one of them is going to be this particular offspring. It sets the stage for Adam calling Eve the mother of all the living, not the mother of all the dead. And yet there's a lot of people we're going to read about in Genesis that are among the dead. Oh, they're walking, they're breathing, but they're identified with the death-dealing serpent rather than with the life-giving woman. Now, what surprises us, perhaps, is that these two family trees, this one characterized by the devil, this one climaxing in a male offspring of the woman, these two family trees are both part of humanity. That the offspring of the serpent is not a bunch of snakes or even that which is evil apart from humanity, but it's bound up in humanity. That it's humanity that is distinguished. And the whole book of Genesis is designed to help us see this vast distinction between those who will display God and have hope in the ultimate offspring and those who need God, between the missionaries and the mission field. And there's ten sections in Genesis. On the chart, they're called the, the Toledot. It's the word, the Hebrew word, that's usually translated, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. There's ten of them. Seven of them are all devoted to helping us understand the offspring of the woman or, as it comes to be, the ancestry of Israel. And three of them are devoted to unpacking for us the mission field of Israel. So this is Israel's Bible and this this book is designed to set a context for Israel to understand where they fit in the world. What is their purpose of being imagers of God and where their mission field is. All the nations that surround them. So 
We come today, our focus is beginning in chapter 5, and we're going to use the beginning of chapter 5 to call us backwards, and we're going to catch up a little bit because we didn't quite finish all the way through chapter 4. But we're moving into this section called the hope for blessing. So God commissioned mankind, fill the earth. That's the commission, but he did it in the context of a blessing. God blessed them and said, fill the earth. Which, what I suggested was that for people to image God on a global scale, for you to battle sin, for me to live as if God is the king of my heart, remember, it's those who are living after the fall who get this as their Bible. When they read, God wants them to show that he is great, to display him, to image him. When God, when God says that to them, humanity is lifting up their hands. You and I are lifting up our hands and saying, as much as I'd like to, I keep failing it. The desires of this world are too great. The pleasures of this world are too compelling. My proneness to anger is too intense. My, my, the littleness of my self-discipline is too great so that I keep succumbing to that which is evil. My eyes keep looking at that which is wrong. That's where I fit, God. And God graciously, from the beginning, didn't just give a commandment, take my image to the ends of the earth, show the world that I am great. He couched it in a blessing. And blessings all throughout Scripture are dependent on God to fulfill. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord do it. And God blessed them. And God said, fill the earth with my image. So as a reader of this book, we come to it and we we find ourselves desperately dependent in order to be part of this line and not this line. And that's how it's supposed to be. This is a book about the life of faith or the life of self-reliance. The life of Tower, Babelish, Babel, Tower of Babelish pride or the, the life of walking with God and trusting and hoping in His coming offspring. This book is, is worldview shaping. It's, 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 it's taking us where we're at and saying, you want to be a part of my plan, my purposes for humanity. It's going to demand certain things. And what it's going to demand is absolute turning from self-exaltation to radical God-dependence. So let's see if we can find that in the text. The perpetuation of kingdom hope in the context of threat. The kingdom hope, we need blessing by the end of chapter 4. The world's in a curse because of sin. The answer to curse is blessing. And there's been a promise that blessing will come, that curse will be defeated. That this serpent-like hostility to God and His ways not only outside in the world, but deep inside my soul has an answer. There's a solution to my problem. And it's bound up in this promise. And there was a small group that put their hope in that promise. In the context of a sea of threat that called the promises into question. This hope for blessing is shaped by two uh, is is unpacked in Genesis in two sections each of them begin with a linear genealogy it doesn't help when i push it point it at the screen <laughs> the structure a 10 generation genealogy from adam to noah just look at Genesis 5 with me and see how this works out. Verse 3, let's begin there. When Adam lived and lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. We don't learn who they were. Seth is the only son that's in focus. 
And when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 870 years. He too had other sons and daughters. All the days of Seth were 912 years, but we don't learn at all about those other sons and daughters. Enosh is in focus. From Enosh, we, we move on to Mahalel. From Mahalel to Canaan. From Kenan to Jared. To Jared to Enoch. I didn't intend to do this. Whoa. From Enoch to the oldest man who ever lived, Methuselah. From Methuselah to Lamech. And from Lamech to Noah. The pace of the story just flew by. We took two chapters to camp on Adam's life, highlighting his life. But now, in just a matter of a chapter, we've gone 11 generations, 10 generations beyond Adam. And it's just bang, 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 moving us right along. And there's two of these kind of genealogies in Genesis. And both of them help us move ahead our vision from where we were to where we're going. And it it leaps us ahead, these big giant bridges. It moves ahead, specifically, the hope side of the original promise. Now how can I say that? Why do I say it? It moves ahead the hope side. Well, Genesis 3.15, these two lines of descent, one characterized by the devil, one climaxing in the specific male offspring of the woman. Look at Genesis 4, verse 1 with me. Eve is kicked out. Eve is called, she's, that's her name, the mother of all the living. There's hope in that very name. And now we come to Genesis 4.1, and this is what we read. Now Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain. And what did she say? I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now whenever I'm reading a story in the Bible, I, I just pause and I say, why did they say it that way? Why did they include this information? Why didn't it just tell me Cain was born and then another son was born named Abel and then they had friction? It doesn't just go there. It it pauses and gives me this statement that Eve made and it's specifically a statement of celebration. A celebration of praise to God that he's given not just a child, he's given a man-child. He's come with the help of Yahweh. Finally, thorns and thistles abound. Tension in my marriage with Adam. All of this because of curse. Because of curse. And finally, he's come. Can you hear that in her voice? But he hasn't come, has he? No, Cain and his brother Abel... Prove that they're on two sides, two different sides of the canyon. Verse 6 The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? God accepted Abel's offering, didn't accept Cain's. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, Know this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, Cain, but you must rule over it. Master that sin. Don't let it overcome you. But it's not what happens. He knocks off his brother. He's cursed and cast farther away from God. And then he has offspring. And the offspring of Cain are not for life, they're anti-life. Look with me later in the chapter. They're contrary to the original vision of family. 
Lamech said to his two wives, verse 23, so it's, it's contrary to the original vision of Adam knew his wife Eve. There's two. But not only that, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. First Cain and then his descendants don't promote life, they promote death. And there's signals that should be going off to you and I, the reader. Eve is the mother of all the living. And she's given birth to a son who's who he and his offspring are bringing destruction. Now we come to the final verse of 25 and 26, chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And now we get another speech from Eve. The mother of all the living. The one through whom the offspring will be born. Enmity between the offspring of the serpent and between the offspring of the woman. Now listen to that. Eve said, God has appointed for me another offspring. The last time that word offspring was used was in Genesis 3.15, where the promise was given. God has given me another offspring instead of Abel. Because Cain had killed him. Now, the mention of offspring takes me back to the offspring promise of Genesis 3.15. And the offspring of Seth is here placed in contrast to Cain. Abel was the offspring of the woman. And she needed an offspring to replace Abel. And that suggests to me that Cain was already being viewed by Eve as not of her offspring. Biologically, yes, but not of the promise. His own lifestyle had proven he was an offspring of the serpent, not an offspring of God. And then we read, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, things began to be altered in the world because men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. There is a passion for suicide, suicidal tendencies in mankind that care little about God. Always that leads to destruction. And its opposite is a passion for life. And what is life? It's, it's not self-reliance, it's calling upon the name. And all who call upon the name of Yahweh, what? Will be saved. That's Romans 9. Sorry, Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's quoting Joel 2. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which is echoing Genesis 4:26. All who call upon the name of the Lord, Cain called, uh, Seth called upon the name of the Lord. But in the days of Enosh, that's when mankind started to call upon God's name. But Cain is not doing that, nor is his descendants. So we've got a small group: the God name callers and the self name promoters. And it's in that context now we come into our text. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now notice the echo of Genesis 1. When God created man, he made him in, his, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And he named them man when they were created. Just a little hint that reminds us of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Both mankind's being created in the image of God in order to resemble and reflect and represent God to the world, and then the addition, he blessed them. Imaging God in a way that results in spreading, fill the earth, 
spreading a passion for God's renown, it only comes in the context of a blessing. That's it. Only in the context of God dependence. Only in the context of calling upon His name. So it's a little echo, and then notice where it goes. So it says, when God created man, he made him in his likeness. Male and female, he created them, blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he now fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. So in a way parallel to God is the father of Adam, Adam is the son of God, now Seth is the son of Adam. And Adam is an imager of his father, and now Seth is an imager of his father. But Cain is not mentioned. And then it's in this context then that we get this ten-generation genealogy. Wherein the image of God and the commission of God is passed on from father to son, from father to son, from father to son, all the way up to Noah. Now, there is hope when I read this. We're not usually drawn to genealogies. They're a little laborsome. Or laborious, that's a better adjective. They're a little laborious, especially when you get a book like Chronicles that starts with nine chapters. There's two reasons genealogies are given in the Bible. And we get both of them set up here in the book of Genesis. One of them is to carry the hope, the gospel hope forward. That's how our entire New Testament starts using the exact same formula, only in Greek, this, these are the generations, or how does it start? Um, this is the genealogy, is how it's translated in, in Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the same pattern using the exact same Greek words that we find throughout Genesis. These are the generations of. And that genealogy moves us ahead, 14, 14, 14 stages all the way from Adam to God. Uh, Sorry, Adam to Jesus. Now in Luke's rendering of his genealogy, he actually takes it all the way backwards. He starts from Joseph, and he moves all the way backwards, all the way to Adam, and then he adds that statement, Adam, the son of God, Luke 3. So when I read this, I'm deeply encouraged that in a sinful context, and every one of these people were sinful, and strikingly, the statement of every man ends with, and he died, verse 8, and he died, verse 11, and he died, verse 14, and he died, verse 17. That's an echo of the curse. Even the believing remnant is part of the curse. But there's a hope, a hope that overcomes the curse. A hope that overcomes my proneness to sin, my proneness to selfishness. And this hope is being carried on from generations nearing you and I, nearing the ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Christ. Yeah. In, in chapter 4? Um, with Cain, we get, a, we get a brief genealogy, but it doesn't... Um, it's functioning in a different way because it, doesn't, it isn't preceded by that title. These, this is the book of the generations of. And so I'm, I'm focusing in particular on this linear genealogy in chapter 5. You're right, it doesn't mention the death of Cain or of Lamech. 
in the text. And I think that in chapter 4, which is ending a unit, it just has a different purpose. But the mention of the deaths is striking in chapter 5. And on the one level, I see all these men being bound up in the curse, and yet on another level, having a deep hope. The seventh generation... is Enoch. So we move from Adam, seven generation, is Enoch. And it's there that the narrative, the narrator, the storyteller, unpacks some things that he doesn't for the rest. There's a literary artistry about that he picked the seventh one. Maybe he could have stopped and set it for all the rest. And he only chose to camp on the seventh one because it was number seven. I, I don't know. But it's also Enoch who in particular, never dies. It's very striking. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God. So not only is this line characterized by calling on the name of the Lord, it's now characterized by walking with the Lord. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. He walked 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all of his days were 365 years Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then Methuselah is mentioned in a very similar way. And then we come to Lamech. And the significance of Lamech is not himself, but in the next generation that he points to by his words. And I want you to hear in this the curse overcoming hope that was bound up in this line of promise. Verse 29. So Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground Yahweh has cursed this one. This one shall bring us relief from all of our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Back in chapter 3, God had told Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Work isn't going to be easy. It's going to be toilsome. It's going to be filled with tension now. It's going to stretch you in ways that are not fun. And they've been feeling the curse through the generations. And Lamech gets up and somehow under prophetic inspiration by the power of God, he knows there's something different about this son, this number 10 in the line from Adam forward. Noah is going to have a distinct role and this is where the text is focusing. We come to the end of the genealogy. It ends with a pause. We're flying through from Adam to Seth to Enosh to Kenan to Mahalalel to Jared to Enoch to Methuselah to Lamech to Noah. And then all of a sudden, we don't just deal with one. He had many other sons and daughters. No, no, now it it lays it out for us and that causes you and I to pause over Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the first one... Shem, it's exactly the Hebrew word for name. Name. That's what Shem's name is. His name is name. And this is going to play into the narrative, I think, quite significantly. You have those who are calling upon the name who are in the line of promise. Now at the climax of the first linear genealogy is one who is called the name. He's bearing in himself an identity that relates to the ultimate one. And then when we get to the Tower of Babel, you've got a whole bunch of people who are offspring of this Ham, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're growing out of these Noah's three sons. And it says specifically in chapter 11, they built the tower in order to do what? They wanted to make a name for themselves. A name for themselves. They're trying to gain something they didn't feel they had when all the while the name has already been provided. 
There's an offspring right there who's a symbol of the ultimate hope. Don't look elsewhere. Look to the one who's named the name and see how you're supposed to live. Before we unpack Noah, there's a tiny little narrative. And it's filled with lots of questions. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to call, sorry, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, notice that the Nephilim are not the offspring of the daughters of men and the sons of God. They were already alive in those days. And afterward, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children, and these These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That is a very strange text. And I don't have the definitive answer for all of you. As to who the Nephilim were, or who the sons of God are, or who the daughters of men are. You may know that there are those that say the sons of God are the angels, fallen angels, who have come and uh, cohabited with human females and they create a massively mighty offspring uh, generation of giants. You've probably heard that one. In Job, sons of God refer to the angels, but... In this text, the only sons of God are Adam. He's the only one who's been identified with God as his father. It's human-oriented is my only point there, and I struggle, and there's nowhere else that I see angels having a, the ability to have sexual, sex with humans, and I'm so I'm cautious with that interpretation. There's others who say the sons of men are of, sorry, the sons of God are of the Shemline, the chapter 5 genealogy, and the daughters of men are from the pagan line, and so you've got interfaith marriages that are going on here. And I'm not sold on that one either. Because if they were truly of this line of promise, hoping in the great king, the coming of God, and all that he had promised, what would they be doing interacting with this group over here? This isn't about two biological lines. It's about two spiritual lines of descent. So if they're truly of the spiritual line, they wouldn't be interacting. And so I'm more prone to see the sons of God as referring to pagan kings. David was a son of God. He's called that in Psalm chapter 2. The Messiah is the son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, There is royalty that's viewed as the Son of God. And in that sense, all of us who are part of his family are able to be called that same title, Sons of God. So I'm more prone to see the Sons of God are these kingly lines who should have been imaging God in their hearts, and they weren't. And they took on, they married non-royal blood, just the daughters of regular humans, not royalty. Regardless of how we understand it, it's a picture of wickedness that brings about the flood. It's sin standing in contrast to what God wanted. It's hostility characterized by looking like the serpent rather than by what was supposed to be happening. And so we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, were evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made man and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man I created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. 
So it's wickedness, wickedness. That same word is used of Israel. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're about to receive this land. No, it's because of the people's wickedness. And then God says, you're a stubborn people. To feel the wickedness statement and to ask ourselves, where do we fall? This is the judgment that Pastor John was talking about today. This is an intrusion of that future day into the present. The first, a deluge of water. The second, a consuming fire. And it will come. And I think the readers are supposed to feel, as we're walking through this, we're supposed to be saying, where do I want to fall? Which side of the valley do I want to be on? And though the majority are over here, it's the side of destruction. I'm I'm not taking you guys, I'm not saying, don't get a complex or anything. I I just, on this side over here. And on this side is the side of life, the side of walking with God, the side of calling upon His name, the side of hoping for the day when the curse will be overcome. And then we read, in contrast to this wickedness, this is beautiful, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Now grace is striking. This is the word for grace. You could just have grace in there. It's the the main word in the Old Testament for grace. And grace can come in one of two sides. It can come in response to our faithfulness Faithfulness breeds grace. It's the pure in heart who will see God. It's those who seek first my kingdom and my righteousness upon whom all these things will come. It's those who pray that will enjoy peace. It's I oppose the proud but I give grace to the humble. The humble can receive grace. But not only is grace a fruit of faithfulness, grace is something that precedes faithfulness. Grace is the very context that makes the faithfulness possible. Are you with me? And in chapter 6, verse 9, we're going to read this about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, just like Enoch had walked with God. Noah is walking with God. He's righteous. He's blameless. And I think we're supposed to understand it in the context of verse 8. How? How could he be distinct in this perverted world? Because Noah found grace. And I'm reading this grace not as a grace of response, but as a grace that precedes verse 9. This is the grace that brought about verse 9. Noah was no different from any of the others apart from this grace. And he enjoyed the grace of God. Yeah, John. Noah is it it sounds as though everything's to be fixed. The curse is to be fully overcome with this son. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like the same type of hope that Eve had. Finally, I've got a son with the help of God. And Noah works to, as an agent through whom there is curse overcoming, but not completely. So there's preservation of the line of promise, the line hoping in God through the judgment. And then we have... Noah's operating as the head of a covenant that God makes with all of creation. He's the, the mediator, as it were, standing between God and all of his world. And in that sense, because God chooses to relate with all of humanity through Noah, he's working to overcome the curse. Um, 
but it's not complete. And, and so maybe we're supposed to see Lamech's declaration as hopeful but only partially true in a way that pushes us beyond Noah to one greater than Noah who is still to be the offspring of the promise of Genesis 3.15. That our eyes see him as a partial fulfillment but nowhere near the complete fulfillment and so our eyes keep looking ahead. And that's, that's the context of Abraham who's longing for an heir. He's still looking ahead. And so when he believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness, it's specifically done. His faith is specifically in the promise of the heir. And in this book, it's an offspring stemming all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So I look at this and I say, well, it does sound messianic. It seems like he's got more hope in Noah than actually is fulfilled. And I, I think I, I'm compelled to say, yeah, we've got to read it that way to get our eyes off Noah and to keep looking ahead to the one Noah pointed to. you have a follow-up on that? Thoughts? Okay. Which verses were those? Chapter 8 and verse, uh, coming into verse 21 and 22. That's very helpful. 21 and 22 seem to be a response to the hope of Lamech. That's intriguing. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. So, I, I need to ponder that further. That's very helpful. helpful, thank you. So a, an, another echo that the wickedness that's going on there that brings about the flood is a rekindling of the same wickedness that went on in the garden. There are, we'll, we'll pick up here next time, there are two, two groups in Genesis. There is those that are serious about God and those that are not. And those that are serious about God are not by nature perfect. They're dependent. They're not by nature self-reliant. Rather, they're radically God-focused, oriented. They're walking in His ways. They're those who've received grace. If indeed they're they are imaging God, it's because of His blessing upon their lives. This text is setting a context for the season we're in, in this church year, a season of a season of shrouded, color-coded darkness. That's the majority of the Western world. The majority of your workplace, the majority of your neighborhood is celebrating a superficial joy in the midst of being headed for hell. And there's only one hope, and it's not bound up in a community, it's bound up in a man. 
and the hope for you to overcome the sin in your own heart is bound up in a man. Walking with God is a gift of grace that we need to pray more for in order that we might find ourselves distinguished not for the sake of exalting ourselves but for imaging Him so that they may see the light of God in our hearts even as it was reflected before the sun even came into being Jesus was that light the God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to let us see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that that light image through Adam and his descendants would in turn impact those around us. And I, as a dad this week, having some victories and having some failures as dad and husband, I, I just found myself as I prepared this text praying, God, keep me on the line of promise all by the grace of your Son. Keep me hoping in Him. Keep me... Uh, Battling sin intensely, not in order to earn your favor, but as a fruit of having received your favor, knowing that the only way I can conquer this sin is because of Christ's ultimate defeat of the evil one. It's blood-bought power. Help me, God, be more of a servant, more of one who calls on your name, more of one who walks in your way, more of one who hopes in Christ as the only means by which the curse will be overcome. So I, I challenge you with that today. This is a gospel book. It keeps our eyes looking ahead to the offspring who has come and who will come again. Let's pray. Father, work in us what is pleasing to you. Help us image you more. May our distinction from those around us not be to exalt ourselves, but to exalt you. And may we have eyes to see the mission field. In your name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His glory in Christ.